thing I'd like to do tonight is uh, correct my title, all right? So uh, uh, this could be stated better, and so I would like it to read, Righteousness is not, strike the words to be, Righteousness is not obtained, strike the words by keeping, but through the law. So righteousness is not obtained through the law. Last week, I talked about how is righteousness obtained, and I emphasized that righteousness is not obtained by man-made rules. We should not be adding to the word of God or subtracting from the word of God as a means of obtaining righteousness. But tonight, I want to look at the word of God itself and our understanding of the do's and don'ts in the scriptures as it relates to righteousness. Okay, so I'm using the law in terms of the moral law of God. And the moral law of God is not given to us as a means of obtaining Righteousness. That's my theme tonight. The moral law of God is not given to us as a means of obtaining righteousness. Theme. The law never served as a means of obtaining righteousness. Uh, that was never the purpose of God's law. It did not change from Old Testament to New Testament. It is not that the Old Testament people are saved by the law and the New Testament people are saved by grace. People have been saved by grace all the time. Okay? In Romans, it continually quotes the psalmist David. It quotes Abraham, quotes the Old Testament to demonstrate the fact that the law was never given as a means of obtaining righteousness. So I'd like to work through the implications of that for you tonight. And uh, I have three pages of application that you don't have that comes as a conclusion. So we're going to look at a lot of application out of this. But first, the groundwork. Number one, in speaking about the law, the Apostle Paul has no animosity towards his fellow Jews. First, he only wants them to be saved. Romans 10.1, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is the Jews, is that they may be saved. He doesn't want to be misunderstood. Interesting, this coming from a formerly very devout Jew. He's going to be speaking negatively about the law, but he doesn't want them to take that as a personal attack. He is not trying to disparage or speak ill of them because of the law or their understanding or their relationship to the law. He wants that up front. And I say that's very interesting because he's one of them. All right, He himself is Jewish. He himself was committed to the law of God before his salvation. And so that teaches us how sensitive that we have to be in our religious teachings because so many times people take what we say very personally. Uh, people take their religious faith 
very seriously. And it's easy to uh, be misunderstood and for people to take it as a personal attack if you say anything negative about their faith. But at the same time, that did not prevent Paul from telling the truth. So we need to be sensitive, we need to be aware, we need to be concerned, we don't want to be misunderstood, but that should not mean then that we become silent and don't confront the issues. But Paul confronts the issue. B, the Apostle Paul affirms the religious fervor of many of the Jewish people. Romans 10.2, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. All right, And he acknowledges their commitment their zeal, their devotion, their steadfastness, okay? These are a very religious people. Certainly the Paul himself had been very zealous for the faith. He had been sold out, but that doesn't make them righteous, okay? Zeal is not the issue. Commitment is not the issue, okay? Sincerity is not the issue. People can be sincere but be sincerely wrong. People can be dedicated but to of no avail. People can work hard at their religious faith and practice. They can be consistent. They can be praying every day. You got to remember the Jewish people, they're reading the scriptures, doing all kinds of good things. But that doesn't mean that they are right with God. And if there's ever a time that that needs to be said, it's to, uh, today in this whole era of religious pluralism. Just because a person is dedicated or zealous doesn't mean that that makes them right with God. C. However, that zeal is not in keeping with the truth of God's word. It says, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in keeping with knowledge, not in keeping with the truth of the word of God. Number two, the reason that they have failed to be saved is due to not fully comprehending the true nature of God's righteousness. This is why it's important to know what righteousness looks like. Now, uh, this phrase, Romans 10.3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God. That phrase could be understood in a number of ways. And I'm going to give you three that I think are appropriate ways to understanding that simple phrase, being ignorant of the righteousness of God. Of God. First, they fail to understand how extremely righteous God is. God is holy. God is absolutely holy. And they fail to understand, in a descriptive genitive sense, the righteousness of God, how righteous God is. He doesn't grade on a curve. There is no unrighteousness in Him. He cannot even look on unrighteousness. God is absolutely holy. Secondly, They fail to understand the degree of righteousness that God requires. And that is, he requires absolute righteousness and holiness from us. And then thirdly, and most significantly, they fail to understand the gift of righteousness that God has provided. And uh, that seems to be the emphasis of verse 3. For it says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God... And seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So instead of relying upon God's gift of righteousness, they tried to earn their salvation through their own righteousness, seeking to establish their own. Okay? They were trying to make themselves righteous enough 
to be accepted before God. That's the problem. No one can make themselves righteous enough to be accepted before God. The result is that they rejected the true righteousness that comes from God. Uh, Seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. That is the righteousness that, that God provided. The righteousness that wouldn't come from them, but would come from the Messiah. And then here's the key for us tonight. Therefore, those who believe in Jesus no longer see the law as a means of obtaining righteousness, and that should be the word for, not or, for acceptance with God. Romans 10.4 For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, it's important to note what is said there. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Christ is not the end of the law. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. In other words... In a knowledge of Christ, the law no longer exists for obtaining righteousness. You see, it was never intended to be used that way. And when a person comes to know Christ, then the law won't be used any longer to be obtained for righteousness. You will understand that that's not the purpose of the law. Now let me me, uh, unpack that. Number three. There are many who teach God's law incorrectly. 1 Timothy 1.7, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. A, the law is only good when it is taught in keeping with its true purpose. 1 Timothy 1.8, now we know that the law is good. Here's the qualifier, if one uses it lawfully. Play on words. The law is good if you use it correctly. See, it doesn't end. It doesn't come to a conclusion. But the question is, now what role does it play? How do you use the law? How do you employ the law? How how does the law exist for us today? B, the right use of the law is to reveal and convict of sin, not as a means of of attaining righteousness. 1 Timothy 1.9, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just or for the righteous, but for the lawless and disobedient. It is not made for the believer. The law is made for the unbeliever. Romans 3.20, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. Now that can't be said more clearly, but think about that. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. No one has ever been justified by the law. Old Testament, New Testament. No human being is justified by the law since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law wasn't given to make us righteous. The law wasn't given in order for us to work our way to acceptance with God. The law wasn't given to overcome our sinful ambitions. The law was given to reveal our sinfulness. It was to show us how sinful we are. 
It was to drive us to receive the gift of righteousness that comes from God. And we use the law correctly when we use it as a standard for righteousness and demonstrating that mankind falls short. Okay. For example, in the old days, Dwight L. Moody was famous for his <clears throat> preaching of salvation. And it was normative for Dwight L. Moody before he presented the gospel to exegete the Ten Commandments. He would talk about lying. He would talk about adultery. He would talk about the Ten Commandments to reveal to his listeners their need of salvation. They needed to understand what sin was in order to be convicted of needing to repent of their sin. That's one of the problems today of many individuals. All they ever hear about is the love of God and they don't know what they need to be saved from. They don't understand what the issue is. They don't understand the great need. They don't understand that they are unrighteous. That all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So the law is given to point out, to instruct, to teach the level of God's righteousness and how we fail to meet up with it. Next, fourth. Nor is the law to be used to promote sanctification. That is, the law is not to be used as a means by which a believer will become more holy. Okay? We use the law incorrectly if we think that we are going to become more holy through the means of the law. Remember, the law comes to an end for those who are justified in Christ. We don't pick it up again. Okay? After we are saved, now we don't go back to the law as a means of becoming more righteous or more holy. I'm going to unpack that for you. Galatians 3.3, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Is it now an act of our obedience that we are going to become more righteous or holy? Galatians 3, 5, and 6, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness? It's talking about believers. Are you going to be made perfect now? Are you going to be made complete? Are you going to be made more holy through the law? And the answer is no. Now comes this section, once again, on man-made rules and religious practices that are of no value in overcoming sinful desires. Number one, why, if we are Christians, do we submit to man-made do's and don'ts, Colossians 2.20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why is if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? Very typical things, even in evangelical circles, that are 
taught as a way of being righteous, and if not being righteous, at least helping us to become more righteous. Teach people, don't touch this, don't taste that, don't do this, and you will be righteous, or it will help you to be righteous. Don't go there, don't do that, don't do this, and you will be righteous. B, these rules seem to be helpful at face value. Colossians 2.23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom. Okay, It seems like the right thing to do in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity, uh, severity to the body. Those things seem right. Okay, It promotes a, a man-made religion, asceticism, that is separating yourself Uh, putting yourself apart. That seems like a good way to obtain righteousness. Don't touch, don't take, be different. Put yourself apart, asceticism. Or severity to the body, okay? Sometimes middle of a period, beat your body, okay? Uh, Bring it into subjection. Uh, Don't do this, don't do that. Uh, uh, Give up for things for Advent, uh, for uh, Lent, and and all kinds of, of ways of, being severe to your your body or don't eat that or don't eat this. But notice this next statement because it's quite striking. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Notice it doesn't say they are of little value. It says they are of no value. They aren't going to help you overcome your sinful desires. Because those sinful desires aren't produced from out there. The sinful desires are produced from in here. The scripture constantly tells us that these things come from our heart. We haven't come to grips with our sinfulness unless we come to grips with that truth. Okay? I don't lust because of what somebody wears. I lust because of what's in my heart. And I can't blame Somebody on what they wear, now, modesty and so on, I mean, there are other issues associated, but all I'm telling you is that's not where it comes from. Because you can dress as modestly as you want. Okay? The Muslim faith, I mean, you you see pictures of this woman that uh, was involved in the shootings of uh, San Bernardino. She's covered from head to foot. Right? I mean, she's dressed, you can't even see her eyes. Now let me ask you, does that mean a Muslim man no longer lusts? Because all the women dress that way? That he doesn't wrestle with that in his heart? That he never looks upon a woman in that way? Of course not. Of course not. It is not about externals. It's about what's in here. And those rules can't change what is in here. 
There is no rule to change what is in here. So B, it is only by the Holy Spirit that we are able to make any progress in subjective righteousness. Now, what I mean by subjective righteousness, objective righteousness is found in Jesus Christ. Because we are in him, we are righteous. We are totally acceptable in God's sight. We looked at that last week. We can't improve our standing with God. He loves us. And he can't love us any more tomorrow than he loves us today. He loves us in Jesus Christ. We are accepted in the beloved, it tells us in the book of Ephesians. Okay? Subjective righteousness. That is in my righteousness on my own part. Okay? My telling the truth. My speaking the truth in love. My not lusting and all those other things. That subjective righteousness. Where does that come from? Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Where do those things come from? The scripture says it's the fruit of the Spirit. Gentleness, self-control. Now this next statement. Against such things there is no law. There is no law that can produce kindness, love, joy, peace, faithfulness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. There's no rule that can produce that. You can say you must be kind. But that can't produce kindness. You can say that you must be loving. But that can't produce love. You can say you must be joyous. But that can't produce joy. Okay? It's like when you have a a child. Okay? And they bonk somebody over the head. And you say to them... Go tell them you're sorry, right? Hasn't anybody gone through that? Okay, a bonk them on the head, and then the little child cries, and you say to them, go tell them you're sorry. You can make them go and say they're sorry. You can't produce sorrow in their heart. You can teach them that they should be sorrowful, but going and saying to this child, I'm sorry, doesn't mean that they're sorry. You know the difference. You understand what I'm saying? You can instruct them, teach them, force them outwardly to profess sorrow, but you can't reach into their heart and make them truly sorrowful for having hit this other kid over the head. There's no law that can produce the change that we desire. That is only accomplished through the Holy Spirit. So we need to rely on the Holy Spirit in order for subjective righteousness to take place. So here are my three pages of application. First, the law can and does reveal our sinfulness. That's the right use of the law. It is the standard of righteousness. It is the standard of goodness. It depicts for us how we should live. 
That's the right use of the law. But it does not empower us to overcome our sinfulness. It is God through his Holy Spirit that empowers us to overcome our sinfulness. The law is used correctly when we use it to define righteousness, to set a standard for righteousness, and to reveal our shortcomings in obtaining righteousness. That's its purpose. So when we read the law of God, it should always produce a contriteness within us. We should never feel that we have arrived. We should feel confident because we're accepted in Jesus Christ. But as we read God's word, we are constantly going to be coming short. That's why we confess our sins. That's why we ask God to forgive us. That's why we ask God for help and strength. So here are the applications. We should not feel confident that our children are going to walk in the truth simply because they hear or are instructed in the truth. Let me say that again. We should not feel confident that our children are going to walk in the truth simply because they hear or are instructed in the truth. Proverbs 22, verse 6 says, Train up a child in the way that he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. I think many people substitute for the word train, instruct. This word doesn't mean instruct. It's a very rare word in the Old Testament. You think about it. Think about the word training. Think about an athlete that trains. There's far much more involved in training than instruction. Is there instruction? Yes. A coach tells you, okay, to how to play the game. If you're a basketball player, okay, you'll learn how to dribble. You learn the rules of the game. You learn position. You learn how to box out. You learn a whole lot of stuff. There's loads of instruction, but it's not just instruction. There's also discipline. There's also correction. There's also endurance. You start running. You getting involved in, you know, minute drills and, and all kinds of things. There's a host of things that are associated with training. And I would submit to you also motivation, okay? So it involves prayer. It involves a whole lot of things. If that truth drives them to Christ and the Holy Spirit, well and good. But if it does not, they will not live godly lives, and we will not live godly lives. We must pray for our children, and we must pray for ourselves if, or, if we are going to live a holy life. We have to pray that our desires change. We have to pray that God would enable us, that God would empower us, that God would use us. And I would say to you that, you know, that's an easy thing to give mental assent to. Yes, I believe that. Of course, that's true. That's a given, all right? But I would just ask you to be honest with yourself, as I am seeking to be honest with myself, okay? What proportion 
of our time? What proportion of our effort is given to prayer as opposed to instruction? How much do we emphasize instruction? How much do we emphasize prayer? How much time do we spend teaching our children? And how much time do we spend praying for our children? The instruction alone isn't going to do it. The instruction alone isn't going to do it. The word of God alone isn't going to do it. Okay? You think about Embark, and I'm all for Embark, believe me. Uh, having children memorize the word of God, it's great. Okay? But let me say this. If the only reason a child memorizes the scripture is in order to earn their way to Victory Valley, it's going to be of little use. I'm not against earning your way to Victory Valley. All I'm saying is there is a difference between memorizing scripture to go to Victory Valley and what the psalmist said when he said, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. The motivation is different. The desire is different. The spiritual input of that is different. Reading the Bible through in a year. You know I'm big on reading the Bible through in a year. I'm still going to be preaching uh, this January of reading the Bible through in a year. But if you think that you are righteous because you read the Bible through in a year, it's a problem. If you think that that's making you more acceptable to God, it's a problem. And even if you think that No, that's not what makes me righteous, but it's what's going to promote righteousness in me. Yes, if it leads us to rely upon Christ, if it leads me to confess my sin, if it leads me to not quench or grieve the Holy Spirit, then yes. But it is the Spirit of God that produces the holiness in our lives, that will change our desires that would cause us to grow in our love for him. Let me illustrate this in a way in which we all know. Take the Pharisees for an example. We know how Jesus repeatedly finds fault with the Pharisees. Finds fault with their understanding. He finds fault with their heart. Understand that the Pharisees knew the law of God inside and out. Understand that most of the very religious Pharisees memorized the Pentateuch. They memorized the word of God. And they were still unacceptable with God. They thought that because they knew the word so well... And because they had it memorized, that they must be righteous. But they failed to submit to the righteousness which comes from God. 
That's the danger. That's the danger. That's where the evil one gets the upper hand. We are not to grieve or quench the spirit. When conviction comes, when that still small voice tells us that we should not do a certain thing or we're prompted to do something, when we fail to do it, then we grieve, we, we quench the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is likened unto a fire and our disobedience is like pouring water on the fire. It just causes us to be insensitive to doing what the Spirit of God would have us to do. We are to be a people who are totally devoted to Christ. Right? Shake your head yes. We are to be a people who are to be totally devoted to Christ. That is world, a world of difference in having devotions. We are not devoted because we have devotions. You will look in vain in the scriptures for having 15-minute devotions, reading all, now all the devotional books just went out of my mind, bread of whatever, okay. <clears throat> it's not about that. What you read in Deuteronomy is from your uprising to your down-sitting, all day long, okay, total devotedness. We are to be totally devoted to Jesus Christ. So let me talk to you a moment about religious fanaticism. Religious fanaticism. The willingness to die for what you believe. Now, think about that for a moment. Is that bad? Is that scary? Think about the Muslim who has been radicalized, okay? That's the verbiage that's being used today. Think about the Muslim who has been radicalized and who is willing to go into a building and blow himself up out of religious fervor. How is that different than a Christian who is willing to lay down their life for Jesus Christ? The call to be willing to give yourself as a living sacrifice to Jesus Christ. How are those two ideas different? Or are they different? Should we as Christians be talking about wholehearted devotion? I submit to you, we should. We are to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind. The scripture says, take up your cross and follow me. The scripture calls us to be willing to die for our faith. So the issue is not, quote-unquote, fanaticism. That's not the scary thing. 
The question is, what kind of God is it that you are willing to die for? What is that God that you are willing to die for calling you to do? That's why it's important to know what righteousness looks like. It's important to know what righteousness looks like because we're calling people to be wholeheartedly devoted, let nothing stop in their way from doing what God would have them to do. So it's scary if a person thinks that looking righteous is blowing up an abortion center. If they think that's what that, if they understand that's what God wants them to do, it's scary. Okay, you think about the Apostle Paul. Before he was converted, before he understood that the law was an end for righteousness, what did Paul's devotion look like? Persecuting Christians, putting Christians to death. He thought. He was doing the will of God by putting Christians to death. But then he came to understand what righteousness looks like. And the Apostle Paul was changed. Not in his fanaticism, not in his devotion, but in the way that that devotion played itself out in the way in which now he was willing to give his life for his faith in Jesus Christ. It is what he understood righteousness to look like. To follow Christ fully is not the problem. To fail to understand what following Christ fully looks like is the problem. And so, I think that our society has really rubbed off on us when it comes to devotion. I think that Christians are scared of devotion, they're scared about giving their lives wholly to Jesus Christ. That that's going to be a bad thing. That's going to be detrimental. I really think that, okay? Have you ever heard the phrase, they are so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good? Have you heard that? Right? They are so heavenly minded, they are of no earthly good. That's wrong. That's wrong. If you are really and truly heavenly minded, if you understand that in the right sense, if you really care for the things of God, you are going to be a better human being. You're going to be a better husband. You're going to be a better wife. You're going to be a better child. You are not going to be harmful to society. You're going to be a blessing to society. You're going to be like Christ. You're going to love people more than the way that you love yourself. You're going to be sacrificial. You're not going to be oppressive. You're not going to be taking advantage. You're not going to be persecuting them. You're going to be inviting them to a right relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not scary. 
to be totally devoted, totally sold out to Jesus Christ. I think we really have to get that right in our own minds because as Christians in our society today, people don't want to hear about being totally devoted to Jesus Christ. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. I really don't think that many Christians, their highest priority is promoting Christ's kingdom and bringing him glory. I don't think that the first thing when people think about being righteous is that I need to pray more. I need to be more dependent upon God. I need to recognize that it's not within me to be righteous. The law is good. Resolutions are good. Self-examination is good if they prompt us then to recognize, man, if I'm ever going to do this, I need God's help. I need God's grace. I need God's supply. I need the Holy Spirit. I need to read the Bible, not just so that God will bless me. I need to read the Bible, not just so I know what it says, but I need to read the Bible because it reveals God to me so that I think about him rightly. I think about myself rightly. I thank God for the acceptance I have in Jesus Christ and now I am imploring the Holy Spirit to bring me to be the kind of person that God wants me to be. And I quit using outside excuses and come to grips with the problem is my heart. It's not where I go. It's not what I see. It's not these things. It's, it's in here. Now that may govern what I look at. They may govern where I go eventually. But the point is it starts in here. But to follow Christ fully is not a problem. The problem is when we have a wrong understanding of what God would have us to do. For what he has called us to do is give ourselves to the betterment of mankind, to alleviate suffering, to not oppress but bring true freedom. More than ever, we need to know what righteousness looks like and communicate it to others. So when you stand around the proverbial water cooler, when you're talking to people at work and there is a concern about religious fanaticism, help them understand that the problem isn't devotion. The problem is the understanding of what devotion looks like. What should I do as someone who is totally sold out to Jesus Christ? We need to communicate that. Our society is afraid of Christians, of devoted Christians. We need to understand that fear. And we need to alleviate that fear. We're not trying to legislate righteousness. 
For we understand that righteousness isn't obtained by the law. We understand that if a person is going to be righteous, they need to come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going over it, and I'll have one more statement, and I'll quit. This is so important because righteousness doesn't come through the law. It comes through Jesus Christ. Uh, Christian counseling is all the vogue today. Whether a person is a believer or not, they are taught to follow Christian principles. They are taught to follow a, a Christian ethic on the way to live their life. The problem is that apart from a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, we can't. We can't. And I know my brother, uh, Pastor Clyde Bumgarner is in full agreement with that statement and understands that difference between Christian counseling and biblical counseling. It's about a life change with Jesus Christ. We need to understand that. Okay, It's not just teaching people right and wrong. It's driving people to Jesus Christ as a way of living a righteous and godly and holy life. Let's pray. Our Father, help us. Help us to be able to make distinctions in the right use of the law. Help us to understand its value in showing us our sinfulness, but in its inability to empower us to live a godly life. It is only the Holy Spirit that can enable us, empower us to bring about those changes in our lives. So, Lord, as as we recognize these areas of sinfulness in our lives as we meditate upon your word and your law. Oh, Lord, help us to be driven to you. Help us overcome the sinful impulses of our hearts. Oh, Lord, change our hearts. Help us to hunger and thirst after righteousness. May we be fanatical. May we put the kingdom of God first in our lives. May we be devoted to you. May we not just have devotions, but Lord, may we love you with all of our heart and soul and mind. And may we understand if we do, we are going to be the most profitable people for our society. We're going to be the best husband. We're going to be the best wife. We're going to be the best parent. We're going to be the best child. There is nothing to fear in being devoted to you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. And you are dismissed.